and branding lessons in the age of disruption from the co-host of the marketing podcast, Alison Stratton. Welcome to the Better Different Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Better Different Podcast, the show with the mission, we kill mediocrity in marketing and branding. We came up with this mission just to create an amazing customer experience. This is a subject our guest Alison Strato knows everything about. She's the co-author of great marketing books like On Marketing, On Selling, and the latest book On Branding. And she is the co-host of the very popular Unmarketing podcast with her husband and well-known speaker, Scott Stratton. In our conversation, we touch a lot of different subjects like podcasting, social media, branding, of course, customer feedback, and answer to the questions, what is schmarketing and why do QR codes kill kittens? Before we dive into the conversation, I would like to ask you to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher because that helps us a lot to get more listeners. We don't interrupt the interview with advertising, so that's the best way to support the show. It's exactly like Beyonce said, if you like it, put a five-star review on it. And now, without further ado, here's the interview with Alison Strand. Welcome, Alison. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Okay, great. For me, I actually became a fan of the unmarketing conglomerate when I saw a keynote of Scott uh, uh, a couple of years ago in 2012 in Amsterdam and uh, his bid on QR codes and really, really stuck, stuck to me because a couple of years later, I was experimenting with my own podcast uh, stuff and I was doing a, a little bit about QR codes and I remembered on marketing and I, I looked it up on Google and discovered you, you had your own podcast uh, and at the time you had like 100 episodes. And since then, I think I, I listened to it every week and became a real, a real fan and, uh, and I really spread the word about the podcast. So uh, I'm really excited about having you on the show today. Um, well, we actually have a book. Our, our, I guess it's our third book. Yeah. It's a very small book. It's just a, It's actually a picture book. And it's called QR Codes Kill Kittens. And it's yeah. all examples of um, businesses doing things kind of really, really wrong. But all like tweet ca- screen captures of tweets and messages. And at the time, the QR code was kind of our example of people using technology just for technology's sake. So it wasn't really against QR codes. It was against how people were using QR codes, which is if they wanted to seem cool at the time, then they had a QR code and some of them didn't work. And, you know, we had a picture of one that was being flown behind a blimp, like way up in the sky, impossible to scan. And so, yeah, that was our, our I can remember that uh, keynote that he did in Amsterdam. And that was definitely our favorite topic at the time was really to go off on QR codes. Yeah, the funny thing is about the QR codes, it really resonates with a lot of people because I've, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs and they all say, oh, we need, a, we need a QR code. And then you give them some examples about really poorly ways to use a QR code. And everybody understands this is just ridiculous when you explain it to them. So uh, I think it's a really, really good example. At one time, uh, we were sitting in a movie theater and before the movie starts, you have some, uh, some advertising. And um, there was actually a QR code and the call to action was scan the QR code and I don't know, you, you get something. But <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking because when you're in the movie theater, what do you do? You, you shut off your phone so nobody yeah, could, could scan it. Just shut off your phone. Like they will, t- they will get angry at you if you have your phone on. Yeah. And we've seen them in subways where generally, you know, your phone won't work. Like you can't get a signal in a subway. So they spend all this money on advertising campaigns and then it's in the subway. It's impossible to scan. We've seen them. Um, one of my favorite ones, there's an image of, in the book, 
It's a QR code for a mall, a shopping mall. Mm -hmm. And it's on one of those automatic doors, you know, that, that when you step towards it, it opens. <laughs> so not only was the QR code on the door, so when you stepped toward it, if you wanted to scan it, the door would open and it would move, but the door opened at you. So you would not be looking at the door. You'd be trying to scan the QR code. The door would open automatically into your phone and your face. I mean, it was just the lack of thinking uh, associated. It's just a tool, right? And so that idea kind of started us down a path, and we're still talking about a similar idea now. But, yeah, QR codes, we really picked on them. We picked on them pretty good. We still get sent pictures of QR codes. So Yeah, I, and, and you should keep doing that. <laughs> um, because... Well, the, the, the QR codes turn really into uh, uh, the Dion podcast, the, the, the show for the fed up. Um, and you have over 200 episodes now. What, what do you think is the success factor for the podcast? Um, well, to be honest, we were having conversations. Scott and I have been working and writing together for a long time. And how we, our process, I guess, for writing was that we would send each other stories. So we'd constantly be online. We've spent a lot of time online researching. That's kind of where we live, I guess. And we would always be sending each other stuff. So if I saw a story about a company doing something or back in the day about a QR code, we'd be texting these back and forth. And then when we'd get together, we'd sit and have conversations about what we saw, what we shared. And those ideas would then turn into blog posts and books. And eventually, you know, the very best ones would end up on stage. And so we're having these conversations and we just realized, like, oh, we should take these conversations and record them like wouldn't that be fun and we to be honest we just love that that's the way we are all the time it's not like a script and we don't practice and that's just the way we speak to each other so we kind of took what we were already doing and started recording it and it became one of our favorite things to do in our business we love recording them and also it's a great tool because the books that I do most of the writing so the books that I've written since I have this incredible library of all these conversations, you know, all taped and recorded and, and everything, all the links are, are all, you know, there for me. So it's just been the most wonderful tool for our business and also such a great way to get to know our audience. What a fan podcast audiences are the most like connected and they're so into it. Like if you get someone to listen to you like that, you really have them, you know, like they're really part of your conversation. So that's really where it started. And The funny thing about the podcast was that Scott is a you know professional speaker. He's he'd been on camera many many times, thousands of times probably. Very comfortable in front of a camera. And for me, I was kind of like, at first I didn't even know why he wanted me to be there. I'm like, you could do this on your own. I'm not too sure what this is about. And so over the years, over those 200 episodes, I've come to really really love it, and also to get used to it, and you know be comfortable with it. And um, yeah, definitely my favorite thing we do in our business. You can really hear it, that the, the kind of fun that you have, um, because it's it's really personal and you share a lot of personal stories, not only on the podcast, but also in the book. There's a lot of, of personal stuff in there. Isn't that weird? It's because uh, in the introduction, I was thinking about, oh, they have a couple of kids and, and, and this is how they live and this is what they like and this is what they don't like. And I thought it would be weird for me to talk about that because we've we've never met in person, but I know all the stuff, uh, stuff about you. Isn't, isn't it weird? People coming up to you and knowing stuff that, that they actually shoot it. Um, well, I think there's two parts to that. I think the first part of it is that I'm very careful with the things I share online. I always have. And this is what I teach my children to, you know, about to be careful, to be kind, 
to make sure you're sharing things that you want to share. Everything I share about my kids, I make sure it's okay with them. I would never embarrass them or say anything. I mean, I'm embarrassing because they're teenagers, so I can't do anything about that. But I would never do anything with the idea of embarrassing them. And so even though I, we do share a lot of personal experiences, all of those experiences are ones we want to share. So we never, I never share anything in anger or, you know, in maliciously or something to poke fun or be negative. Like, and, and I think that's part of it. So even though we let people into things that are happening to us, it's all on purpose maybe is the best way to explain it. And we've thought about it. Um, and then on the other side, I think partially if I had a partner who wasn't in this space, I probably wouldn't do that because part of those stories is Scott is in all of them. So if he wasn't okay with it or he wasn't a part of this, then I wouldn't do it. And I would feel if the same, I would want the same respect if it was me. If I wasn't a part of this, I don't think I would like him writing about something we did, you know, because it's personal. So I think the two things, the idea it's he and I together sharing our story together and the fact that we are careful in that it's positive and, you know, kind um, and we think helpful that we share it with purpose, I guess. Okay, but yeah, I, mean, I think the kids think it's weird. Every once in a while we'll be somewhere and someone will recognize Scott and, and then they'll call the kids by name, which is funny because <laughs> the kids have no idea who they are. Um, but, you know, that's part of grazing kids today, I think. We share their stories a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a branding lesson on its own, really thinking about what to put out there and not put out there. Yeah, I think we're very quick to react And I have found I'm very careful about sharing things that I feel good about. And that doesn't mean that I sugarcoat things. I just feel as though, you know, if, if I'm going to treat my children and my family the way I would treat any of my friends, I wouldn't say something bad about them. So I feel like you're in public, I guess, is the best way to say it. When you're, when you're online, you're in public. And I treat it that way. The brands that are covered in your stories, because most of the co uh, stories in the podcast aren't really uh, positive ones from a brand's perspective. Um, have you ever been approached by brands in the uh, uh, that you discussed in the podcast? Um, in in positive note, we have like we recently, which was funny, we were talking about. There's a I'm not sure if they have this in the Netherlands, but there's a kind of a movement here with mattresses, like it for beds. Um, that you don't go to a store to buy a mattress, you order it online and they send it to you. And so we had, do they have, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that kind of a company. Um, yeah, well, that kind of company, but not really mattresses. We, we, okay. that's not a big thing in Holland yet. Yeah. So this, this idea, and it was sort of a shift, right? Because traditionally you would go to a store, you buy a mattress and then I guess Ikea changed a little bit. You could order it online. Um, but this is online only. So there's no store. And we had, I had seen a mattress for my son and one of our sons and ordered it online. I wanted to test it out and he needed a mattress and I loved it. I just love the product so much. And so we ended up buying them for all our kids. The thing is they're all kind of younger teenagers. So everyone's growing like weeds. And so I need to replace their beds. So I, we talked about it on the podcast because what happened is I ordered an incorrect size and my mistake, 100% my mistake. And it came. So I got in touch with the company and I had a great response for them very quick. Uh, refunded my money, ordered me the right size, and they were partnered with a charity because they couldn't resell a mattress that had been opened. And so the, the mattress was donated to a charity and they arranged all of that. Somebody came out to the house, picked them up. So it was a really excellent experience. And we were talking about it on the podcast and I said that we were kind of laughing because our kids have it so good. Like we were the only 
people not sleeping on one of these mattresses. And the company got in touch with Scott and actually sent us a mattress, which we didn't ask for. Um, so that was really cool. You know, we like mattresses. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've had we mostly good stories, to be honest. Like we did, we spoke about a tour company uh, that did museum tours. So you would go to fam- famous museums and it was like a private tour run by a separate company. And me and my son, Ben, went and did one of those on a trip that we took. And they got in touch with us. We uh, we usually reach out to companies that we're going to write about, like, in the book. And so we'll send books out. So, yeah, there there is some contact for sure. But usually it's the positive stories. I don't think we've had a lot of uh, negative story companies get in touch with us. Yeah, maybe for the better as well. Yeah, probably for the better. But even there, you know, that's a good branding lesson as well. And something that's important, I think, is that all the stories that we share, like, we have vetted them and we've made sure that we're prepared to say what we say. I think sometimes people say negative things because they want to get a reaction, you know, like, you know, you're the person that's tough on companies or something, but that's not ever been our stance. Like we only talk about stories that we would feel comfortable if the company called us and said, Hey, what are you talking about? We would be comfortable in saying like, look, this happened and we shared the story. So we actually don't worry about that too much because it's something we think about before we choose the stories to talk about. Yeah, but wouldn't it be great if a brand like an airline called and said, well, you're, you're true, the, the, this is the story, uh, and this is what we're going to improve to make sure it doesn't happen again in the future. That would be awesome, right? It would be awesome. And we had Bell Canada, which is a, a company here, at one of our cellular companies in Canada, who Scott and I did some research, and Scott ended up finding out they were faking reviews on their app, and they got fined like a million dollars. Or something like a very serious fine happened and Scott was a part of the story like it was Scott and I that broke that story and so but Scott is one of their customers so we're always joking every time he gets his phone bill I'm like did they add the million and extra <laughs> yeah like has it been you know put on so who knows I'm yeah. sure one day all right looking at the book on branding in the age of disruption why the age of disruption where did that came from well so we like all of our stories, we just we started researching with the idea that we live in a time where things are moving very quickly around us. It's hard to escape that. I mean, since we were talking about QR codes now, how many new technologies, new tools have there been? Like hundreds, thousands yeah. probably. You can get and, your mattresses set at home by an online shop these days. Did yeah. you know? <laughs> exactly. And because we're entrepreneurs, like we're using these tools as well. So, you know, our kids play with new toys and we're getting new technology all the time. So we started trying to figure out like, how do people make the right decision? Like, how do you decide when Snapchat becomes huge, whether or not as an entrepreneur, you're going to point your company in that direction. And because these are decisions we make for ourselves, you know, and also because companies come to us or people come to us and ask us what we think, we started looking at, okay, so who are these companies that are making the right choices? and started researching some older brands that had been around a while. And so this concept of disruption is not a new concept, but it is happening at a quite an accelerated pace today with all these new technologies coming about and changes in people's patterns and a new generation growing up doing things differently than we had when we were growing up, which isn't a new concept either, except that it seems to be accelerated in terms of tools for business. And so that was what we decided to look at. Who were these companies that had made it through? And what we really found was that companies that focused on loyalty, building loyalty, creating loyalty, keeping their customers that they had, their current ones, those were really the companies that were making it through all of these changes. So when a new technology came to them, 
instead of just jumping on board, kind of like the QR code idea, jumping into the new technology because they want to seem like a cool company or hip company, or because a you know consultant convinced them that this was the thing they had to do, they looked at who their customers were currently and figured out whether this new technology would improve their service, improve their product, improve their experience, and that was how they made their decisions. So that was kind of where the whole big concept of the book came. All right, and in the book you come up with four key factors, comfort, cost, convenience, and convergence. And I was wondering why those four? Again, like, so the, sto- the book has a hundred brand stories in it, um, but we looked at thousands. Like we looked at, we looked at constantly every single day, stories and stories and stories. And we did interviews and we went and visited companies. We talked to people and these themes, you know, as happens, themes started to appear and we started looking at convergence, for example, with this idea of, you know, people want to do business with companies that they agree with their values and they want to feel good about giving their money to that company. And so when you look at, for example, the mattress company, Envy, when I was already a customer, but when I found out that my mistake was fixed by donating the mattress to charity, which felt made me feel like we had convergence, my values and the company's values, that made me an even more loyal customer. So those kinds of things just became themes. And then once we had the themes, we started, you know, we, we, Whittling down the stories to the hundred was probably the biggest challenge, but figuring out just how strong the themes were um, was actually something that surprised me. So I was happy with the way it worked out. Yeah, it really works out great in the book. But as I was reading the stories, I just kept thinking, isn't a lot of this just common sense? It's like marketers and entrepreneurs keep forgetting that the customers are human beings like themselves. Um, let me give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, we were staying at a uh, at a hotel with a with a whole family, and uh, we had breakfast there. And after breakfast, we all sat together and uh, played a few games. And uh, the waitress came and he said, "What do you want to drink?" And my sister said, "I would like uh, a cup of tea." Okay, that's great. Uh, what tea would you like? I would like uh, the strawberry tea that I had for breakfast. And she said, and I kid you not, uh, that is not possible. We only serve that tea for breakfast but we were in, sitting in, a, in the next room and we could actually see the, the the strawberry tea bags sitting at the other side of the glass we could point at them and say we want that tea bag now i'm sorry no, we're not allowed to serve that here that once the clock hits 10 the strawberry tea cannot be served anymore it doesn't work yeah no. but we were looking at the tea bag yeah i think what that speaks to is a problem that we see a lot where people's first reaction is no Like your first reaction is no, it's avoidance. It's you call somebody, you ask for help. Their first reaction is to try and find a way to pawn you off to the next person. Uh, You ask for information rather than actually sending you the information. They send you a link where you can find the information. Like we just seem to be in this place where we just want to get out of it as quickly as possible. Like no. And that's a great example of no. Like why? Like why would that be a problem? And yet... And, and we kind of look deeper and try to figure out, like, well, why do people do that? Like, why do we why do we go to know? Like, why is that the first place we go? And I don't know, maybe she was having a really bad day or maybe she likes strawberry tea and wanted to take it all home with her. I mean, who knows? But sometimes frontline workers especially get the brunt of, um, you know, bad companies, bad corporate structures. They're treated the worst. They're paid the worst. They get the customers on the other end who think that they're like in charge, like they're the CEO of the company. 
you know, and for all you know, she has a boss who has a boss who has a boss who was given some weird directive about tea and she's just delivering, she's the messenger, you know, like, what are you going to do? And if you don't get paid very much and you don't have a lot of power and control in what you're allowed to do, sometimes, you know, and then she gets the brunt, right? And then she's the strawberry, like she's hoarding the strawberry tea. Um, one of the things we learned recently, which was pretty neat is we really like Ritz Carlton as a brand. We talk about them quite a bit. And, um, we, Scott was at a conference and he heard one of the uh, executives from Ritz Carlton speak. And the executive said that apparently every front, they call them the ladies and gentlemen of the Ritz Carlton have, I think it was up to a thousand dollars to solve any problem. And that's just theirs. Like they don't have to ask, they don't have to, you know, put a memo together. So when I leave something that's precious to me at a Ritz-Carlton and then have this amazing story where they return it to me right away and I can't believe they found it, that's because they have discretionary money to be able to react quickly without having to check through a whole bunch of people. And also because they feel empowered. When somebody treats you well as an employer, when you're a worker and someone treats you well, you want to treat people better. You feel proud of where you work. You want people to have a good experience. You feel part of the company. And so... One of the things we see is that there's a lot of kind of trickling down and, you know, getting out of the, getting out of the way of responsibility and it gets worse and worse. And, and then as customers on the other side, you know, we just want, you just want tea. It's not, it shouldn't be so complicated, right? Like it shouldn't right. be, it shouldn't be a big deal. Um, so I, I understand the frustration. And to be honest, that's why so many of our stories are personal is that, you know, we're people, this is what we do. We're also partners who live it together. So we talk about it a lot. And when you go into the world as consumers, these are the experiences you have. And we wanted to share them because they're what, they're what we know the best, what happens to us. And we're mostly really at heart. I think we're consumer advocates above anything else. Like, I think if we really kind of, you know, I know we're marketers and all this kind of stuff, but really we're consumer advocates. And I think every marketer should be a consumer advocate. You should really look at who are your customers and what do they want and try and experience what it's like to be them. And then yeah, maybe you treat people a little bit better, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I had another interview with uh, the person at Starbucks responsible for uh, employer branding. And she said, it's all about the last 10 feet. We can do, we, we, we can invest billions in marketing and creating an amazing brand. But if the, uh, the person handing you the cup is having a bad day and is giving you a lousy experience, that hurts the complete brand. It does, because really, we don't we don't meet the other people. And, th and that person is Starbucks. That student or, you know, employee who's been there a long time and all these things, those, that is Starbucks to us, that person. And they can make or break it. And that's a lot of power, but it's also, most people in those positions, I don't think, are made to feel that they have that power. And so, and Starbucks does a great job of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the book, there are a hundred uh, branding lessons, but you must have one or two favorites. Can you share them with me? <laughs> um, well, non-personal stories, I would say I really love the um, peanut butter company. It's one of the first stories in the book, uh, mm -hmm. Home Plate Peanut Butter. And I love that because I was lucky enough to talk to uh, Clint, who's the founder and the owner. And what I love about their story is he was such a pleasure to speak to in that he was so positive. And, you know, most of the time, like you said, we have a lot of negative stories. And if something happens bad in business or social media, Scott and I are inundated with emails and messages. And, you know, we really get that from other people, which is fantastic. So it was so nice to talk to him because he would just, you know, when you think about food 
there's a lot of negatives you could look at. And you think about competing with huge companies, I mean, Kraft, and these are multi-billion dollar international companies. So a lot of people would look at the negatives. And instead, he was so focused on their strengths. And that taught me a really important lesson about being a smaller company or an employee in a big company and how focusing on what you can do and what other people can do around you can really grow and can really make something special. And, and so that was definitely one of my favorite stories. Um, Personal-wise, I love the Sears chair that had the arm on the wrong side. It's one of my favorite stories. And then Sears went out of business here like three oh, months after the, yeah, after the book came out, which, we were <laughs> not, which was not our fault, by the way. But okay. um, although I think we experienced some of the customer service that may have led to them going out of business, um, we didn't cause them to go to business. But that was, I love that story because it's true. Like we, it's not, I did not make that story up. It is a real story. The chair's upstairs and it was just, I couldn't believe it was, you know, when something happens like the tea and you can't believe it's happening, like you're just like, you can't believe it's happening. And as you know, as a writer, half of my brain is like, I can't believe this is happening. This is going to ruin my day and the kids are going to come home and I'm not going to have this. And the other part of my brain is like, this is going to be such a good story. <laughs> so, that's one of my favorites too. All right. Can you briefly explain explain what happened for everybody who oh, yeah, uh, sure. uh, didn't um, read the book yet? No, it's just a tease. You have to buy the book. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, so we we needed a chair for our bedroom, and Scott has a bad shoulder, and so we wanted it to have an armrest on just one side, like a chaise lounge, I guess. So it's long and and have like a like a chair that has stretched out your legs. Yeah. Um, and so we went to Sears, uh, which is a kind of large department store that used to exist near us. <laughs> And uh, we ordered a chair. It was custom made, so it was going to take six weeks. We were fine with that. And Scott sat down in the chair, and the woman taking the order said, okay, and she wrote down what arm we wanted the arm on, and et cetera. And we paid. It was, wasn't cheap. And then six weeks later, uh, two gentlemen showed up to deliver the chair, and they brought it upstairs. They were a little bit rude, but it was okay. I was dealing with it. And they came upstairs. And the first thing they did was they didn't open the box. They just left the box. And then they asked me to sign some paperwork. And so I said, no, I'm like, I'm not going to sign this paperwork that says my chair looks really good because I don't see my chair. So they weren't very happy about that, but they opened the box and I didn't notice it because it was, I think because it wasn't my issue, like I don't have the arm. So I just assumed it was the right arm and they opened it. I signed the paperwork and they left. And then Scott got home a little bit later and he sat in the chair and he said, well, the arm's on the wrong side. I'm like, what are you talking about? The arm's on the wrong side. He's like, this is not the right arm. Like, this is the arm that's sore. I was sitting in the chair and they, you know, remember she helped us. So I'm like, I couldn't believe it. You know, like I had these guys open the box. It's in the house. I figure I'm never going to get my money back. Scott's going to be miserable. Like, it's just not good. So he, I called the company and I said, you know, my husband got a chair. And so she pulls up the paperwork and she says, yes, that's a right-handed chair. And I said, well, no, like I wanted the arm, like the arm was supposed to be for his right arm. And she said, oh, no, 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 that's not how chairs work. The way it works is that when you look at a chair not sitting on it, that right-hand side is where the arm is. And I said, uh, no, that's not how chairs work. You sit in the chair and your right arm goes on it. And she genuinely told me, like she was genuinely thought I was going to keep the chair because that's not how chairs work. And I just I couldn't believe it was happening. <laughs> so anyway, they agreed to take it back and they ordered another chair. But unlike Andy, who, you know, helped me through all of that, I had to do everything myself and I did not get a refund until I got 
you know, my other chair, return that one. And it took four months to get the right chair upstairs. Oh my so, God. That's such yeah, that's a fun not, story. I couldn't believe it. So that's not how chairs work. And yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> but as a, as a customer service employee, how, how do you not think like a, a consumer there? Why everybody knows that um, uh, what, uh, when it comes to a brand, not everybody knows uh, the lives about your customers don't revolve about your brand. So oh. when you order a chair like once every 10 years, you don't know which side the arm is on. So you can't, no. you can't demand that for your customers to know everything about your product, right? No, plus he was sitting in the chair when she made the notes. So we kind of thought maybe it would be obvious since he was in the chair telling her what arm. But apparently not. And then again, like, you know, she's an employee at Sears. She's frontline. I'm sure she lost her job recently, which is sad. <laughs> she's hard. sitting in a chair at home. Yeah, you know, I, or, you know, I, it's, it's a challenge, right? And, and I think that all, all products have these things, right? That the handed chair, everybody, everybody's product has that one thing, you know, it causes yep. problems. They have to explain it extra well. And that should really be the top of your mind, like making sure that whatever that issue is that has to do with your product, that people are educated properly about what that thing is. Because almost every product has something like that, right? You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. You buy a new phone, you didn't realize they changed the charger, now you have to get new headphones. So that's part of the education piece is this is our new phone, but you're going to need new headphones. They tell you that like right away because they don't want a bunch of angry people on their hands later. So yep. I think you need to think about that when you're looking at your own company too yeah but so on the other hand now we have manuals that say you can dry your cat in the microwave but (laughs) (laughs) that's something entirely different um and when when you spin it around because in in holland we have a saying it's it's like the customer is always king um i don't know if if you have it in canada as well well yeah uh, customer is always right yeah okay we we call them kings but sometimes your customers aren't acting uh, uh like a royal um, how do you deal with that as a company? What I mean is uh, sometimes uh, customers just are, aren't right, you know? And yeah. um, they started yelling and say, we're going to put a one-star review uh, on Yelp or something. As a brand, how do you deal with that? It's one of the things we get asked the most. And I think that it's more complicated than a simple answer. I think it depends on what's going on. If sure. you have a company and you're getting a lot of negative feedback about a certain issue... I think you need to take a good hard look at what that issue is. And we have a lot of examples of that in the book and, you know, on different things we've written about before. Sometimes as business owners, especially when you're an entrepreneur, you really don't always see your company the way it actually is. And feedback is one of those ways to open your eyes and see it. So I want to make sure that some people are open to the idea that they at least take the feedback for what it is and then get some trusted opinions. So if a whole bunch of people are telling you that a certain food item on your menu isn't good, then go get somebody's opinion you do trust, but listen to the feedback. So that's one thing that's important about that. The second thing is, I think it depends on how, what the situation is in which the feedback is being given. So when you're dealing with Yelp or Google or online reviews, you need to remember that these reviews are in public and how you're gonna react to them has an exponential effect in your company. So you may have been able to get away with being rude to one angry customer in your store or one upset person on the phone and it never went any further. But when you act snarky or rude or uh, you know dismissive to somebody in public, 
that is going to be seen by a lot of other potential customers. So you want to be really on your best behavior. It comes back to that acting like you're in public when you're online. So remember that because it can also have the exponential effect in a good way. We have a lot of stories of companies who mess up. And then the way they handle the mess up actually makes them come out looking even better. And more people want to do business with them because, hey, mistakes happen. Mistakes happen in business. And if you're able to fix somebody's problem, I'm going to feel like if a problem happens for me, you're going to be able to fix my problem. So it's really like a public, it's really marketing. It's dealing with customer service in public is marketing. And how you handle it is going to have an exponential effect. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. you say, a, a, a complaint is an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. a huge opportunity. The other thing is the more fans that you have, the more able you are to have that anger mediated by an angry customer. We had a story here, or it's in the States, maybe with Ikea, and a woman was in an Ikea, and she claimed that she was thrown out for breastfeeding her son. And when we put the story online, what happened was a lot of people said, that doesn't sound like Ikea. You know, they've always been great. My mom's group meets there and then we go shopping. And so when you are known for being a good company, you tend to have people who stand up for you, especially with that public angry customer, that one ranting person. There usually are fans and community around your brand that will stand up for you, which is really nice because they can say things that you're not able to say as a brand. And sometimes that's the greatest value of having built a community is that you have a line of defense against the you know occasional angry customer, which is bound to happen. Everyone has eventually angry customers. So that's another good thing that you can do. And then I would say, you know, when you get a bad review on Yelp or something like that, there tends to be this idea that it's a Yelp problem or it's a this review problem, or if only I could pay to have those negative reviews taken off, then I wouldn't have a problem. But You don't have a yell problem. You have a business problem. These are tools that people are using to voice their opinions. We need to hear our customers' opinions. It's the most valuable tool that social media gives us is that as businesses, we can actually hear what people think. They don't just walk away and never come back. And so you really should be valuing those um, reviews, even if that means that you might get some bad ones. So I guess listen to the feedback. Try to focus on the positive. Build a community to help defend you and build you up. And then remember that you sh you need to hear it, you know. You need to hear it because it's it's what business is all about. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And I always love it when a uh, what a brand responds to the uh, of gives a response to the to the feedback that is given on the site. Uh, especially when I was booking a hotel a few weeks ago, and uh, in the reviews there, were, there was someone who complained about uh, uh, something that the bathroom wasn't clean enough, something like that. They actually responded and they say, "Oh, we're terrible. We looked up the date, and uh, this and this has happened. I really apologize, and it made me feel better." So as I think, well, maybe if I booked a hotel, something is wrong. At least they solve it in a good way. Yeah, and there's been some research that shows that not having a hundred percent positive reviews is actually better for your business. And one person's bad review, like for example, if you are going out for dinner with your partner and you want to go to a, a restaurant, if you look up a review and it says, great for families, me and my kids had the best time there, well, that's a positive review. But you and your partner may not want to go for dinner someplace where I had a great time with my five kids. So sometimes what's really what we really need is honest reviews. And those can be good and bad and everything in between. But the important thing is to welcome them 
and to be there. Listen to your customers. Say thank you when someone gives you a positive review. Don't just focus your attention on putting out fires. If somebody says they love your store, if somebody says they love your suit or your briefcase and you're the, you're the company, say thank you. Because I think we spend a lot of time only focusing on the negative. And sometimes that's why people get so angry. Well, one of the things I love most about the podcast is the, is the made of words. And uh, I, I don't have a team song here, but I do have three made of words here just to test uh, your made of word knowledge. Are you, are you ready? I think so. <laughs> All right. Um, well, the first one is, is, is really easy, but I really hate this word. It's fitfluencer. Oh, gosh. I'm assuming it has something to do with fitness and being an influencer. Yeah. I'm not against fitfluencers per se, but when people say, I'm a fitfluencer, that's when it really starts bugging me. And I think that's the worst time when the words are used to, like, describe you. Like, if you if you ever considered putting, like, a hashtag in front of the word and putting it near your name, like, you're making a mistake. Like, yeah. other, people, other people can call you an influencer, but maybe it's not the right thing to be... Uh, shortening into a made-up word and calling yourself. Yeah, it's, it's like giving yourself a nickname, Mr. Cool. <laughs> you can't do that. It's not allowed. No. No. All right. The second one also makes me blah. Um, and, it, and it's actually by uh, HubSpot. HubSpot is promoting it. And uh, when I was a marketing director at an online marketing agency, we were a HubSpot partner. And, and it's a great company. Um, but they have a really American style of marketing. So they came yeah. up with this word, smarketing. Schmarketing? Is it smart I, marketing? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's that, uh, what they explained it to me. It's, it's smart marketing, and it's also the combination of sales and marketing. Oh, gosh, sales and marketing. Schmarketing. Awesome. I may need to steal that and use it on the next show. I think that's my favorite one. But what is wrong with just calling it sales and marketing? Why call it smarketing? I honestly don't know. I think it started, we were, I remember years and years ago, probably like eight years ago now walking around and I think we were at C, it wasn't, may have been CES or like a, a social, it was a social media conference. Yeah. And you know, as like, as domain names started being like so hard to get, like the names of companies had to become more and more obtuse because, yeah. you know, everything was taken. And so the words started being like more like you had to basically to have your name of your company be your domain name. You had to make your company name up because everything else was taken. And the words started getting more and more kind of obtuse. Schmarketing. <laughs> and to be fair, I added a sure to make it sound schmarketing, but, but still. Um, okay. And the, and the last one is uh, actually a word that I, that I use and, and, and I like it. Uh, but it's hard to translate because in, uh, in Dutch, we have the word courgette. Which okay. uh, actually in uh, uh, in English is uh, zucchini. Yeah. Yeah. And when you make uh, uh, like uh, uh, I'm not good, not gonna spoil it. It's uh, zucchetti. <laughs> so it's zucchini spaghetti, like where you put it in that spinner thing and it makes the spaghetti noodles, right? I like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I think that this is a made of word that actually makes sense. It makes the world a better place. I know, I don't know very much, but I know a tiny bit of Dutch. And from what I know of Dutch, you guys are the kings of pushing words together into very long words. Uh, that's actually you true. You guys have like the longest words. You just push all the words together into <laughs> one word. That's actually a sentence. That's my, that's my understanding. Uh, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's kind of true. Um, yeah. But I'll not give you Dutch lessons, right? Have you ever been to, uh, to Holland? I have been to Holland. I, my, actually, my ex-husband is Dutch. And so my kids oh, wow. are... Cool. and uh, very blonde and very tall and mm -hmm. so they have family that are in holland and i have been 
And actually, I was with Scott when he came in to speak at the conference that you met him at as well. Oh, cool. um, so yeah, I've been there many times. All yeah, right. I have, uh, I have Dutch children, so yeah, uh, I'm familiar. Ah, cool. I didn't know that. Good to hear. Um, <laughs> just to round up, um, one last question. What's next after unmarketing, uh, unselling, unbranding? What can you unify next? <laughs> we're actually probably not going to unify anything next. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We are writing a new book. Well, we are right now researching a new book, which I'm going to start writing uh, in March. So I haven't actually sat down yet, just researching mm -hmm. now. And um, yeah, and that's all I can tell you right now. But we're kind of um, probably it won't be an un. I think we saw unmarketing, unselling, and unbranding as kind of a trilogy. And um, we're going to still be talking about marketing and stories. And we're still going to talk about the same things we've always talked about. But I think a little bit different in the catch phrase, I guess. But the unpodcast certainly isn't going to stop. We love it. So we're going to keep doing that and more, more good things. All right. Great. Any last wise words to share with the audience? No, I just, I appreciate the conversation. It's really nice to be here. I don't know if I have wise parting words. So <laughs> just uh, watch the schmarketing. I'm going to put it <laughs> in the show. So. Yeah, that's a good one. And uh, for everybody who wants to hear more about Alison and uh, uh, her conversations with Scott, I urge you to go listen to uh, uh, the Unpodcast, which is on iTunes and uh, probably on every other podcast outlet out there. Um, and get the book on branding. It's uh, on Amazon and bookstores near you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? Thanks so much, Alison. Bye-bye. All right, this concludes this episode of the Better Different Podcast. And we're still really just at the start of this podcast. And I would really love to hear your feedback on the show. Or if you have any guest suggestions or subject suggestions, I would love to hear them. Just send me an email to dennis at thebetterdifferent.com. Or get in touch on Twitter, that's at DennisVDLO. Alright, don't forget to give us a new review on iTunes or on Stitcher. We could really use some and we really appreciate it. And I hope you'll tune in next time for our next marketing guest. Alright, we are The Better Different. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.